32. Re. Soaked in water, a bread has been made, which proved nearly as nourishing as wheaten bread. Insect ways and means. X. How insects make silk. Of all the marvelous things of which the lower creatures are capable, certainly one of the most wonderful is their power of spinning threads of the most beautiful fineness, some of which we know as silk, while for others we have no special name, though insects are at least, from our point of view the most important of the world's spinners, yet they are not the only creatures who possess this secret, for the spiders and mussels and the pearl oyster have also shown themselves very wonderful spinners. The purposes for which the fine thread is spun are very different. Caterpillars use it chiefly as a means of providing a warm covering while in the chrysalis stage, so also do some beetles. The spider uses its silk to build cunning traps for unwary flies. The muscle lying below the surface of the sea employs its power as a spinner to construct a cable, which, being fastened to the rocks on the seabed, prevents the otherwise helpless muscle from being washed away. In the silkworm figure when the silk is produced by certain peculiar structures, tube-like in shape, known as the silk glands, the silk is created in a liquid form in the inside of the silk gland, and, becoming mixed with a kind of dough, is forced through a sort of mechanical press, from which it comes through the mouth in the form of the delicate threads which we know as silk. This silk is used by caterpillars for various purposes, and varies much in quality. That spun by silkworm caterpillars is much prized by man. The caterpillar uses it to form a case for the protection of its body when turning into a chrysalis, from which it will emerge later a full-grown moth. When spinning, the caterpillar begins by sending out the end of a thread which is quite soft and sticky. This immediately sticks to the object to which it is attached. This done, every movement of the caterpillar's head draws a fresh piece of the silk thread from its mouth. When spinning a cocoon, the thread is made to form a long, oval, egg-shaped case around the body of the caterpillar. But sometimes, as in the case of those caterpillars which live in companies, it is used to form a sheet or tent within which the tent makers dwell. Other caterpillars use the power of weaving silk as a means of escape from enemies. When in danger they let themselves down onto the ground by attaching the end of a thread to a leaf or twig, and then dropping off leaving the thread to be drawn from the mouth by the weight of the body as it falls. Under the microscope each thread of silk is seen to be double, the total length of the thread when unwound from the cocoon is over a thousand feet. Over 400 different kinds of silk-producing caterpillars are known. The spinning glands of the spider are placed at the tail end of the body, but the threads spun therefrom, though strong, are of little use for commercial purposes. Silk fabrics have, however, been made from spider webs, but these are only curiosities. The silk, or, as we may call them, the spinning glands, consist of from two to four pairs of organs, or spinnerets, placed together in a small cluster. The threads which they form are made, as in the case of the silk of the caterpillar, of a sticky fluid, which, when drawn out through the tiny holes of the spinnerets, and exposed to the air, form fine threads and these combining together form the silky thread with which we are familiar. One of the principal uses of the silk threads is to form nets to catch small insects. These nets are often as is the case of the garden spider, for example very beautiful. In their construction the greatest skill is shown. The method is briefly as follows. First of all a large five-sided frame is formed, then long threads, which are rather like the spokes of the wheel, are added. These harden at once, and to them are attached the cross threads which form the delicate network of the complete web, but if the web be examined with a strong magnifying glass,
there will be found, among the network, a number of threads bearing little drops of a sticky substance figure 2. These are made by special glands, and differ from the ordinary threads in that they do not dry on being exposed to the air. They serve the purpose of bird line that is to say, they are there to aid in entangling insects which fly up against the web. Having spread his net, the spider returns to a little shelter woven on the underside of a leaf. Here he waits for his victims, holding in one of his claws a long, delicate thread attached to the web, so as to serve as a means of communication with the trap. The vibrations set up by the struggles of the captive giving warning by shaking the communication cord, he then rushes out. If the victim be small, and throwing himself upon the wretched prisoner, sucks him dry and cuts away the web so as to release the empty carcass, should a wasp or bee happen to be caught, the proceedings are much more cautious, and the spider himself often proves the victim. Spiders when small often use their spinnerets much as the witches of old were supposed to use a broomstick that is to say, as a means of traveling through the air, turning the end of the body upwards they force out a few threads, which, caught by the breeze, are blown away, and so a number of long threads are rapidly drawn out, sufficiently long at last to carry the spider itself with them, when too heavy to fly, they sometimes send a thread adrift and wait until it catches in some projecting bough, this done, they make fast the end to the bough or leaf on which they may be resting, and climb along this tight rope to build a new home, the floating threads formed by broods of small spiders are sometimes very numerous, and cover everything, they are especially noticeable in hedges, and are one of the causes of what is called in the country gossamer, WPPYCRAFT, FZSALS afloat on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 303, chapter XII. the journey upriver was a very tedious one, and promised to be longer than Ping Wang had expected, for, as soon as darkness came up, the boat was moored for the night near a riverside village, the boatman declared, in a very humble tone, that he dared not go any further until daybreak for fear of being attacked by pirates. On the following morning, at daybreak, the journey was resumed, but before the travelers had covered two miles, while the mist was still hanging over the river, King Wan noticed a boat rapidly overtaking them. It was a long, narrow craft, paddled by eight men, another man knelt in the bows, and two more stood up in the stern. The latter were armed with old-fashioned rifles. Pirates. The boat owner shouted in terror when he had glanced at the pursuers, and instantly there was a panic among his men. One of them dived into the river and swam towards the bank, but the other three, who could not swim, ceased rowing, and hid themselves among the cargo. Make the cowards row. Ping Wang commanded the boat owner, but without any result, for the man was himself terror-stricken. Hasn't the wretched man got any weapons aboard? Charlie said aloud, Ping Wan translated Charlie's question, and the boat owner answered promptly, Your miserable slave has one gun, which does not belong to him, he is taking it to a mandarin, your wretched servant does not know where it was bought, never mind about that, Ping Wan declared, guessing at once that the fellow had a rifle which had been stolen from some European, bring it here at once, the boat owner produced quickly a long bundle of cloth, and from the middle of it pulled out a rifle, Ali Medford, Fred exclaimed, as he snatched the rifle out of the man's hand, where is the ammunition, here at Island Ping Wang said, as he burst open a box and displayed several packets of cartridges, that is splendid, Fred declared, as he opened a packet, like many London medical students, 
he had become a volunteer, and was, moreover, a good shot. Having placed the open packet of cartridges beside him, he took up the rifle, and, after loading it, raised it to his shoulder, but did not yet fire. I won't shoot, he said, until I am sure they mean to attack us. He had not long to wait before receiving proof of the pirate's intention. The boat was approaching fast, and when it was about a hundred yards from them, the pirates fired, their rifles made a tremendous noise, and the traveler's boat was hit about an inch above water. That is enough, Fred declared, and, placing his left foot on a seat and resting his left elbow on his knee, he took aim and fired, good shot, Fred, Charlie cried, as one of the pirates who had fired on them fell forward, wounded, among his comrades, the pirates had evidently not expected such a reception, and the result of Fred's shot filled them with dismay, they ceased rowing, and took counsel for a few moments, look out, Fred, Charlie said, there is a man in the bow with a breech loader. He's aiming at you. Just as he spoke the man fired, and the bullet whizzed perilously near to Fred's head. Get under cover, Charlie begged, but Fred replied calmly, I can do best where I am. Again he fired, and this time he smashed the blade of an oar. Finding that no one was hit by that shot, the pirates took courage, and the three men with guns fired simultaneously, but without doing any damage. I'll give them the magazine. Fred said, and fired eight times in quick succession. How many men he hit they never knew. Charlie and Ping Wong saw five men throw up their arms, while a sixth, who fell overboard, made such frantic efforts to save himself that the boat capsized. Now row, Ping Wong shouted, and, pulling the three boatmen from their hiding places, pushed them back to their oars. Seeing that all danger was gone, the men smiled happily as they resumed work and were not at all ashamed of their recent cowardice. Charlie turned to his brother, Fred, I am awfully proud of you you have saved our lives, I wish I had joined the volunteers, but, I say, he continued, put on your goggles, or the boatmen will see that you are not a Chinaman, they must have found that out some minutes ago, Fred answered, for we have been talking ever since we saw the pirates, perhaps they did not notice it, Ping Wong suggested, but he soon discovered that this was not the case, while Fred, from force of habit, was cleaning the rifle after using it, the boat owner approached the travelers, and said to Ping Wong, the foreigner shoots very straight in spite of his sore eyes, he has saved your life, Ping Wong replied, sharply, if he had not shot the pirates, they would have killed all of us, that is true, honorable brother, I and my men are full of gratitude, then you must all vow not to tell anyone that he is a foreigner. The boatman considered the matter for a few moments. We will promise. We will take an oath. He declared at length. He lighted a piece of paper. And, as it burned to ashes, he expressed the hope that, if he told anyone that the two men with goggles were foreigners, he might also be totally destroyed by fire. The other men took the oath in the same fashion. Will they keep it? Charlie inquired. When Ping Wong had made known to Fred and him the nature of the oath, I cannot be sure of it, Ping Wong said, I will keep this rifle until we reach the end of our river trip, Fred declared, shortly after the sun had set, the boat arrived at the place where Ping Wong had decided to land, the foreigners and I will not land until daybreak, he said to the boat owner, moor the boat, it will be safer for us to begin our journey by daylight, Ping Wong said to Charlie and Fred, after telling them that they were to remain on board until the morning, 
I have not traveled by the road we are going to take since I was a small boy, and consequently it is not familiar to me. There is another road which leads to Kwangan, but it is more frequented than the one by which we are to travel. Our road is a roundabout one, and rarely used since the shorter road has been made. I hope that we shall meet very few people. How far shall we have to walk before we reach the first village? Charlie asked. About five miles, and Kwangan is six miles beyond that. Then we shall be there tomorrow night, I suppose. I hope so. By the by, do you feel hungry? Very. Charlie answered, speaking for Fred as well as for himself. Then I'll ask the boat owner to sell us a couple of ducks I know he has on board. Ping one returned to his friends presently, holding in his hands two well-cooked ducks. We shall soon polish these off, Charlie said, as he, Fred, and Ping one took their seats under the awning, with the ducks on a big wooden plate on their knees. Your appetite always was enormous, Fred remarked, but I was thinking whether we ought not to save one of them. Ping Wang, shall we have any difficulty in obtaining food tomorrow? I don't think so, Ping Wang replied. However, it would be a good thing to save one of the birds until the morning, so that we may have a good meal to start the day. One duck was therefore kept, and the other eaten. Ten minutes after the meal, Charlie, Fred, and Ping Wang were sound asleep, with the duck near them on the wooden dish in which it had been served up. When they awoke at daybreak the dish was where they had left it. But the duck had disappeared. This is serious, Ping Wang said. One of the boatmen must have stolen it. I will ask them. He did so, but the men promptly vowed that they had not stolen the duck. They did not appear at all surprised. However, when the accusation was made, and Ping Wang concluded that they were not speaking the truth, as you have stolen the duck, Ping Wang continued, sternly, you must return to me the money which I gave for it. Would my honorable brother rob his slave? The boat owner asked, in alarm, yes, if you cannot give me the duck, I must have back the price I paid for it, if you cannot give me the money, I will keep the rifle which the foreigner is holding, this decision alarmed the boat owner, honorable brother, he said, after a few moments silence, I will search for the duck, perhaps it has rolled off the dish, he searched in what appeared to Ping Wang to be very unlikely places, and found the missing dandy in a basket on top of the pile of cargo. The rifle shall be given you, said Ping Wang, and then turned to speak to Charlie and Fred. We had better breakfast on shore, he said, let us land at once. Ping Wang handed over the Lee Medford to the boat owner, and the three travelers stepped ashore, thoroughly glad to get out of the boat. Continued on page 317, Encounters with Lions, the accounts which travelers and hunters sometimes give us of their encounters with wild animals are often very interesting not only because they are exciting, but also because they show us the habits of the various animals, and the effects which are produced upon the human brain by these sudden and unusual attacks. Mr. Moffat, the missionary, describes the very strange behavior of a lion which caught a native asleep. The man was returning home from a visit alone, when, tired with his walk, he sat down to refresh himself by the side of a pool, and fell asleep. He awoke with the heat of the Sunday and found a lion crouching scarcely more than a yard from his feet. He sat still for a few minutes, and tried to think what he ought to do. His gun was lying a little distance away beyond his reach, and he moved his hand towards it several times. But whenever he did so, the lion raised his head and uttered a loud roar. So long as the man remained quite still, the lion did not molest him. The day and the night passed, 
and neither the man nor the lion moved from the spot. At noon on the following day the lion went down to the pool for a drink, watching the poor man all the while, and then returned to its former position. Another night passed, and again on the following day the lion went for a drink. On this occasion it was alarmed by some noise, and made off to the bush. The poor native crawled to his gun, and then crept down to the pool to drink. His toes were so scorched by the heat of the rock that he could not walk. Fortunately, he was discovered by a person passing, and was rescued. He lost the use of his toes, however, and he was a cripple for the rest of his life. Livingstone once nearly lost his life in an encounter with a lion in South Africa. He had gone out to shoot one of a troop of lions, in order to frighten the rest away from the village. After the natives who were with him had allowed several to escape, Livingstone shot at one about thirty yards off, and wounded it. He was quietly reloading his gun, when he heard a shout from one of his attendants, and, looking up, he saw the lion springing upon him. It caught him by the shoulder, and shook him as a dog shakes a rat. The shaking seemed to deprive him of his sense of feeling, and he felt neither pain nor alarm, though he knew quite well what was happening. The lion growled all the while, and placed his heavy foot upon the doctor's head. At this moment one of the natives had courage enough to fire, and, though the shot failed, the lion's attention was drawn to the native, and it rushed upon him and bit him in the thigh. Another native tried to spear it, and he in his turn was attacked, and bitten in the shoulder, but this time the lion was exhausted by its wounds, and fell down dead. Not long ago a government ranger in the Transvaal had a fierce struggle with a lion, which was reported in the field. He was riding homewards alone, having left his companions behind, when he heard his dog bark at something near the path, and saw a lion crouching near him on the right side, ready to spring. He turned his horse quickly and the lion missed his spring, but the ranger was thrown from his horse. No sooner did he touch the ground than another lion pounced upon him from the opposite side while the first ran after the runaway horse. The second lion seized him by the right shoulder, and dragged him quickly along the path, his back and legs trailing along the ground. The animal growled and purred like a cat with a mouse, but in very much louder tones. The poor ranger was greatly distressed, both in body and in mind, and it was not until the lion had dragged him about two hundred yards that he remembered that he had a sheath knife at his belt, as the lion stopped at the foot of a large tree. He drew his sheath knife with his left hand, and stabbed the animal twice in the right side. The lion jumped back, and in a few moments he turned and walked away, growling and moaning as he went. Meanwhile, the ranger climbed a tree, and tied himself to a branch, lest he should lose consciousness and fall off. There he was found by his companions, and conveyed to the nearest hospital. The body of the lion was afterwards discovered not far away. Its heart had been pierced by the blade of the sheath knife. The lion was an old male, and its empty stomach showed that it had been rendered unusually fierce by hunger. Philip Wood and Sir Christopher Wren, be off. I tell you, we want no loiterers here, said a workman, roughly pushing away a country lad who was gazing with deep interest at the busy crowd of people engaged in the rebuilding of St. Paul's Cathedral, this famous church, destroyed by the Great Fire in 1666 was now some three years later being restored under the direction of Sir Christopher Wren. I am not loitering, sir, answered the lad humbly. I have come up from Suffolk to seek work. I can carve, and I can be off. I tell you, harshly interrupted the foreman, 
We want no hedge carpenters here. Here comes the master. Be off, or he will make short work of you. The master, no less a person than the great Sir Christopher himself, now came up, and catching sight of the lad, said sternly, Who is that youth? Has he business here? If not, bid him be gone, for lookers on hinder the work. Just what I was telling him, Your Honor, said the foreman, scowling at the boy. He has come to look for work, he says, but I told him we wanted no country bumpkins here. Sir Christopher cast a searching glance at the boy. What sort of work can you do? He asked. The boy, Philip Wood, by name, was much flustered at being addressed by the great architect himself, and hardly knowing what he said, he stammered out, I am very fond of carving. Sir, carving of, what was the last thing you carved? Asked Sir Christopher. The last thing was a through. But and Philip was about to describe the group of roses and columbines he had made for the squire's chimney piece, but was interrupted by a scornful laugh from the foreman. A through, and he too seek word on street Paul's. Let him return to his swine. Sir Christopher joined in the laugh. Then, seeing the crestfallen look of the boy, he said, half scornfully, Troughs, well, then, you have seen pigs. Suppose your carve me a sow and her little ones, that will be in your line. Bring it me here this day week. He walked away, and the workmen burst into a loud laughter as they hustled Philip out of the yard. He, poor fellow, was utterly cast down at this mocking suggestion of Sir Christopher's, and hurrying back to his attic he flung himself on his bed and burst into tears. Some hours later, his landlady, a motherly old soul, who pitied the friendless lad, toiled up the attic stairs with a basin of broth for him, knowing that he had had no food that day. Heidi tidy, she said, going up to Philip and putting a kind hand on his shoulder. What's amiss? What's wrong today may prove right on the morrow. So never fret. Lad, Philip could not resist her sympathy, and she soon got from him the story of his reception by Sir Christopher, and how the great architect had scornfully told him to go and carve a sow and her little ones. It was all my own fault, continued the boy. I was so confused, I never told him of the bedstead I had carved for the hall, nor of the mantel shelf, but I blurted it out about the through, and then he bade me carve a sow, and Philip turned red at the remembrance. He said that, did he? Said the woman eagerly. Then do it, and show your skill. Sir Christopher bade you come again, and he will not refuse to see you. Set to work on the sow. And mind she is a good one. Encouraged by these words, Philip got up, drank the broth, and, feeling cheered by the food, took his last crown piece, bought a good block of wood, and returned to his attic. He worked at his wood block from morning to night for the next week, hoping I, and praying earnestly that he might turn out something that the master would not despise. It was finished at last, and pronounced by the landlady to be as like a sow as one pea is like another. So, Hoping much and fearing more, Philip took his group, carefully wrapped in an apron lent him for the purpose, and made his way to the cathedral yard. Hello! Here comes our young hedge carpenter, exclaimed the foreman, as Philip passed the gate. What's he got so carefully wrapped up? Another through. I take it. Let's have a look at the treasure. And as he spoke he reached towards the bundle, but Philip would not part with it. Mumber he said firmly, Sir Christopher set me the task and he shall be the first to see it, before long Sir Christopher appeared, and, seeing the boy standing humbly waiting by the gate, 
he called to him, and, taking the bundle from Philip's hands, slowly unwound the wrapping, there, to the very life, was a fat old sow, with nine little piglings grouped about her in every possible attitude, Sir Christopher looked long at the group, saying never a word, whilst poor Philip grew hot and cold with terror, he hardly knew if his work were good or bad, he only knew that he had put all his heart into it, and tried to do his very best, at last the great man spoke, it is good, very good, he said firmly, I will keep it and give you a guinea for it, and I engage you, young man, to work on this building, attend at my office tomorrow forenoon, Philip bowed low, his heart was too full to speak, and Sir Christopher continued, I fear I did you some injustice a little time back, and for this I am sorry, but a great national work is entrusted to my care, and it is my duty to see that no part of the work falls into unskillful hands, so the country lad, Philip Wood of Sudbury, accomplished his ambition, and found regular work on Street Paul's Cathedral, those people who care to study the old parchments, still preserved, on which the building accounts of the cathedral were kept, may read that large sums of money were from time to time paid to Philip Wood or Haley as he was called after his marriage, when he took his wife's name, for carved work in the cathedral church of St. Paul, S. Clarendon, the two dolls, I have a doll, an old, old doll, the playmate of many years, I've danced around with her in my smiles, and hugged her tight in my tears, and I've a doll, a new, new doll, Twas given me yesterday, dressed out in silk and beautiful lace, ever so bonny and gay. One is battered and scratched and gray. The other has hair like gold, but much as I love the new, new doll, better I love the old. GMMAL rings, rings, from a time very far back, have been worn as ornaments on the hands, and given by people to each other as tokens of affection or as a sign of power. The oldest rings known were very large and cumbrous and they were adorned with stones, sometimes flattened to make seals on wax or clay. The gentle ring, as it is called, is an old kind, probably several centuries old, and rings of this sort are not made now. From what we know about them, it would appear the first ones were of French work, that nation being long remarkable for skill in contriving curious jewelry. Some may have been made in Italy, and even in our own land rings have been dug up from the earth where they were hidden away with other valuables, or perhaps occasionally buried with those who had worn them. A gentle ring has a double row of hoops, locked within each other like the links of a chain. One edge of each ring is flat, so that when one is slipped over the other, the gentle looks like a single ring, while opened out. Two persons can put a finger into the hoops, and this fact gives the origin of the old name applied to them, though it has somehow got a little altered. Gamino was the proper spelling coming from the Latin the mean is a twin, because such a ring is twin or double, of course, owing to its form, a gentle ring was valued as a love token, and at one period it was often used as an engagement ring, or even as a marriage ring, it is supposed that some gentles, which have one ring gold and the other silver, were made for wedding rings, the gold being for the wife and the silver for the husband, there are gentles still existing which are adorned with precious stones, and some have singular devices on their sides, one found at Horselidone, in Surrey, had on each of the two parts of the ring a hand, draped, and holding half a heart, when the ring was closed, the hands appeared joined, holding a whole heart between them, other rings had mottoes in French or English, the word gentle was formerly applied to other objects besides rings, thus we have in Shakespeare a mention of the gentle bent, 
some sort of double bit for a horse. J.R.S.C. Wonderful Caverns, Ix. The Grotto of Elabiaelimi. The worshippers of Buddha and Brahma have not been alone in taking advantage of caverns to build temples and religious houses. For in Dauphine, in eastern France, we find the magnificent Grotto of Lobalm used for the same purpose. The builders of the West have not, however, taken the same trouble over hewing out the solid rock as did their eastern brethren, but have contented themselves with building in an ordinary way a handsome church in the mouth of the cave. The cave is of great height, being more than a hundred feet to the roof, whilst the breadth at the entrance is sixty-five feet. In reality the building consists of two chapels placed side by side, with rooms for the clergy and a belfry. The effect of the white building against the dark arch of the cavern, surrounded by a frame of rich green creepers, is very fine. Masonry has also been used to support the cliff to the right of the church. A broad causeway with parapets leads into the cave, and down each side rushes a stream, which comes from the recesses beyond. On entering the cavern the roof soon becomes lower, and we soon find that the single cave divides into two long galleries. Taking the one to the left, we come into what is called the Grotto of Diamonds in which the water oozing through the rocks has left a crystal sediment which sparkles like diamonds when light is flashed over it. Small rock basins form a ring, and, pouring water from one to the other in tiny cascades, have also crystallized into beautiful forms which reflect and multiply the gleams of light. We follow a rocky ledge etched with a fringe of stalactite drops about six inches long, and then creep along a dangerous path with dark depths on either side. This leads downwards to a tranquil lake which reflects our lamps and torches. On our return we take the gallery to the right, and come across a curious stalagmite called the Capuchin Monk, wonderfully like a human being about six feet high. All around are stalactites and stalagmites of every possible form, and we long to do a great deal more exploration of the endless rock passages branching on every side, but, alas, they are too dangerous going to the endless crevasses of a known depth which cross and recross the rocky galleries, where a slip probably means a horrible death. As long ago as the time of Francis I of France, who reigned in the 16th century, two criminals condemned to death, were, by order of the king, offered their lives if they explored the grotto of Lobalm to its extreme limits. No record seems to have been kept whether they accepted the author. Possibly they preferred a certain and speedy form of death to long sufferings in the darkness and terrors of the gloomy cavern. Helena Heath, afloat on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 311. As soon as the travelers had landed, they set out on the road to Kwangan, eating the second duck as they went. They understood perfectly that they were about to begin the most dangerous part of their journey. Don't appear surprised at anything you see or hear was Ping Wang's sensible advice, and remember that an exclamation from either of you,